I was asked to make an announcement uh, before I start. The prayer meeting uh, this Monday, which is tomorrow, will be uh, praying for the community and uh, salvation. Usually it's the last Monday of the month, but it'll be this Sunday, this Monday. Sorry. The photographer for a national magazine was assigned to shoot a great forest fire. He was told that a small plane would be waiting to take him over the fire. He arrived at the airstrip just an hour before sundown. Sure enough, the Cessna was waiting. He jumped in with his equipment and he shouted, let's go. The pilot swung the plane into the wind and soon they were in the air. Fly over the north side of the fire, said the photographer, and make several low-level passes. Why? asked the nervous pilot. Because I'm going to take pictures, retorted the photographer. I'm a photographer, and photographers take pictures. After a long pause, the pilot replied, You mean you're not the instructor? We as Christians cannot take things for granted, and we must make sure that we're seated next to our pilot, Jesus, before we rush off to do God's will. Let's open in prayer. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning with joyful hearts. Joyful for you are our salvation. Joyful for since the beginning, your will was that none should perish but have everlasting life through you. Thank you that you have worked out our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that through him we can come to you just as we are, sinners without a plea, forgiven and redeemed, not by our doing, but by your grace and your love for the world. May the words spoken this morning be pleasing to your ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Our message this morning is Jesus and God's will. As we read from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40, we see that Jesus came to do the will of God the Father. Reading from John chapter 6, verse 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus tells us that the key issue of coming to Christ is not seeing or doing, but believing. This is probably the greatest truth that we refuse to believe. Christianity is not doing, but believing. Paul Francisco writes, When I was a child, 
our church celebrated the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month. At that service, the offering plates were passed twice before the sermon at the regular meetings and just prior to communion for benevolences. My family always gave to both, but they passed a dime to me to put in only at the regular meeting. One communion Sunday when I was nine, my mother for the first time gave me a dime for the benevolent offering also. A little time later, when the folks in our pew rose to go to the communion rail, I got up also. You can't take communion yet, my mother said. Why not, I said. I paid for it. (laughs) This child's humorous story shows a very adult attitude. We may think that we can earn God's salvation. But it's the teaching of scriptures like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, and Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that salvation is a gift which is not dependent on good works or human effort. Doing good works should be a response to our belief and to our assurance of salvation, not a means to it. God is not asking if we trust Christ, but will we trust Christ? It's not in our nature to come to God. We are moved by God. Jesus has promised that he will accept the will of the Father. And God's offer is universal. Christ's fulfillment and security is assured. Jesus tells us that the reason he came was to accomplish the will of God the Father. Notice God the Father's will is God the Son's will. There's no difference. They are in complete agreement. God's will is that Jesus would secure those that the Father gives him. And God's will is that everyone who believes in Christ will have eternal life. One of the clearest messages that points to this is the way that Jesus spoke of the will of God in Gethsemane when he was praying in Matthew 26:39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The will of God in this verse refers to the sovereign plan of God that will happen in the coming hours. And we recall how Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28 says this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the will of God was that Jesus should die. This was his plan. And there was no changing it. And Jesus bowed and said, Here's my request, but you do what is best to do. And that's the sovereign will of God. And let's not miss the very crucial point that includes the sins of man. Herod, Pilate, the soldiers, the Jewish leader, leaders, they all sinned in fulfilling God's will that his son be crucified, as was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer.
To receive Christ, we must recognize we must recognize him for who he really is, namely one whose teachings is God's teachings and not merely man's. Jesus says in John 7:17, 7, "You will never know this about him, and thus never receive him for who he is, unless you have a will that inclines to do the will of God." He is saying that a certain kind of willing must precede our knowing or recognizing that Christ is worthy of being received. He's not merely saying that we have to want Jesus in order to receive Jesus. He's saying we have to want our whole life to be shaped by the will of God in order to even recognize Jesus. So Jesus is saying that the basic reason why people do not own up to the truth of what he teaches is not that we lack sufficient evidence, but that our wills, or could we say our hearts, are against God. The fundamental problem is not intellectual, but moral. The great obstacle of recognizing the truth of Christ is not deficient resources, but deep rebellion against God. When we come to will what God wills, namely the enjoyment and the magnification of his glory, then we shall know concerning the teaching of Jesus whether it is from God. And we will receive him for who he really is, the way, the truth, and the life. So now the question arises, which many are asking today, how can we know if he is telling them the truth? How can we know whether Jesus is an imposter or is that he is actually speaking on behalf of God? Is he true or is he false? And notice it is Jesus who raises the question. And he raises it because it is clear that the Jewish crowds do not know that his teachings come from God. Their question in John 7 verse 15 shows that they don't know. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. The question shows that they're not even close because they're not focusing on the meaning of the teaching. How is it that this man has learning? Who cares if he has learning? The question is, what does he mean? And is it true? In John 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus poses the big question, how do you form a right judgment? How can you know? How can you know if he is true? How can you know if anybody is true? And here's Jesus' astonishing answer in John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. When our desires are God's desires, when our passion is God's passion, when our preferences are God's preferences, then our reason will be able to see Jesus for who he really is. When our willing is in sync with God's, our knowing will be in sync with the truth. But Jesus does not leave us with verse 17. He goes on in verse 18 and he gets specific. He has in mind at least one particular kind of willing that has to be transformed if we are to know him 
for who he is. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Willing God's will enables us to know who Jesus really is when he reveals himself to us. We can know who Jesus really is because he lives totally for the glory of God. Verse 18 describes specifically the deepest change that has to happen in our will so that we can see Jesus as true. And this is why the Gospel of John puts such a clear emphasis on the need to be born again. We need to love making much of God more than we love people making much of us. Being opposed to this is the greatest obstacle of knowing Jesus. Jesus does not merely speak from himself. He speaks for God. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. He bears true witness that he is the word and was with God from the beginning and is God. When he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He is true, and you can trust him. God's will is that you be saved, delivered from sin and death and judgment and hell. And that's what the word saved means, to be rescued from eternal damnation and eternal punishment. In Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and acceptable. In the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And in Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's will is that you repent. It's God's will that you be saved from eternal destruction. This is the will of God. So much is it the will of God that he sent his son to become the sacrifice for our sins, to make that salvation possible. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost because the salvation of the lost is the will of God the Father. In fact, in a number of incidences in the New Testament, this becomes clear as an expression of the will of God. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching in a particular place. His mother and his brothers arrive, and he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And what is the will of God? God himself said it. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God's will is that we embrace Christ. God's will is that we put our trust in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially said the same thing. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that for you, all in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. 
And what is the will of my father, of the Father? That we embrace the Son, that we put our trust and saving faith in the Lord. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and that's the will of the Father. And the one who does the will of the Father has eternal life. What will of God? The will of God to believe in his Son. The will of God to put our trust in his Son. God's will is that we be saved. In John chapter 6, verse 38, there's a statement along this line running down through verse 40. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to do my Father's will. Then in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. So no person who has rejected Christ, no person who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can ever know the will of God. No one who has not come to Christ in true, in true repentance and no one who has not come to Christ in true faith has any claim on knowing God's will about anything else. Billy Graham, in his 1956 sermon, on the mystery of God's will, says this. Sin, <clears throat> I have to take a drink of water to do my Billy Graham impersonation. Just. <clears throat> no. Sin has blinded men, and the average man sees light in a false perspective. But the born-again Christian sees life not as a blurred, confused, meaningless mass but as something planned and meaningful with a desired purpose. One of the wonderful purposes of redemption in Christ is to give sight to the blind, to open our eyes to spiritual truth. We are no longer in the dark about life. We know where we've come from, we know where, why we're here, and where we're going. If you would know the will of God for your life, you must go to the cross and confess that you're a sinner and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. One of the ways that we know the will of God is through the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you have eternal life, and they are they which testify about me. One thing we can be perfectly clear of <clears throat> is the will of God, and that is that none should perish. It is the will of God that you should give your life to Jesus Christ. And that is the reason that Christ was sent to die on the cross. It is the perfect plan of God. It is the will of God that every person in the human race repent of his sins and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. We're going to miss Billy Graham, but he has more joy now than he has ever had on this earth because he is in the presence of Jesus. And as great as a preacher as Billy Graham <clears throat> was, he also said this, I am not going to heaven because I have preached to great crowds or read the Bible many times. I'm going to heaven, just like the thief on the cross who said in that last moment, Lord, remember me. So if this is true, which it is, then the opposite is also true if you're putting your faith in Christ. Even though 
Try as I may, I can't live the Christian life. Try as I may, I continually, <clears throat> continually fail. Even though many people think I'm not walking as I should, and Satan tells me that I'm not good enough, I'm going to heaven, just like the thief on the cross who said in that last moment, Lord, remember me. Jim L. Wilson writes this about P.J. O'Rourke, whoever that is. <laughs> P.J. O'Rourke is now living with the joys of raising a teenage daughter. Recently, while the daughter was complaining about life not being fair, O'Rourke said to her, You're cute. That's not fair. You're smart. That's not fair. Your family's well off. That's not fair. You were born in the USA. That's not fair. Darling, you better get down on your knees and pray that things don't start getting fair for you. <laughs> Many complain <clears throat> that it's not fair that God offers salvation to those who believe and not to those who deserve it. I thank God that I don't get what I deserve. I have received grace, whether it is fair or not. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 tells us, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one <coughs> can boast. And Philip Yancey's words ring truer to my ears now than they have ever done before. Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. And D.L. Moody puts it eloquently when he says, if you ask me why God should love us, I cannot tell. I suppose it is because he is a true father. Paul Ellis' book on grace has really touched my heart, and perhaps today... <clears throat> If you're feeling inadequate to be receiving God's grace, then I hope these words will help you understand just how God feels about you. He writes this, What is the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world? It's not turning from sin. It's not prayer. It's not confession or moral living. <clears throat> For all these practices can be found in one form or another in other religions. The one thing that makes Christianity faith unique is grace. Grace is God's divine favor and loving kindness towards you. Grace is God's blessing, blessing you with himself for no other reason than it pleases him to do so. Grace is not a doctrine, but a person, and his name is Jesus. Grace is not one of God's blessings, but all of them wrapped up together in Jesus. Grace is the gift of all gifts from the giver of all givers. As far as we know, the Lord of grace who came from the throne of grace, full of his Father's grace, and from whom we have received grace upon grace, never uttered the word grace. But he sure showed it. Actions speak louder than words. Jesus did not come to preach grace, but to be grace. And he did this by loving unconditionally <clears throat> and forgiving indiscriminately. Jesus hung out with crooks and con men and hookers and tax collectors. He ate with sinners and Pharisees 
and he reached out to uh, filthy foreigners. He told stories of radical grace. He defended the guilty, and he forgave the unrepentant. And in the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen, he gave up his life so that through him we might truly live. Inspired by the radical love of Christ, the Apostle Paul traveled the world preaching the good news of God's grace. For Paul made no distinction between the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ. He treated them as one and the same message. Jesus is the embodiment of grace, said Paul. All the blessings and favor of God are found in him. So what does the grace of God look like? It looks like Jesus. What does the grace of God sound like? It sounds like Jesus. The grace of God comes in many flavors, but it is ultimately revealed in his son, Jesus. Jesus is grace, and grace is Jesus. Last the uh, band to come up. Thank you, Carrie. That's a wonderful, wonderful message. It truly hits home. I'm just curious if Carrie still only gives 10 cents. But Father, we read in the Gospels that in that night in the garden, as the mob approached Christ and his, and his disciples raised the sword, Jesus would say, put your swords away. For how then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way. And Lord, Father, we know it must happen this way, for it is your will that these things would happen. Lord, Father, it is your will, as a brother said, that all mankind would be saved, that all mankind would repent, that all mankind would believe, that all mankind would be saved. You find no pleasure in the death of a sinner, Lord, Father, but it's your good pleasure that all would repent and come to faith in you and believing in you. Lord, Father, it is also your will that your Son would go forth to the cross for that joy that was set before him to take the shame upon him, to be crushed by his own Father, to take our guilt and sin upon him, that we may have this forgiveness of sin, that we have, may have this identification in him, his righteousness, righteousness and purity upon us through faith in him. And Lord, Father, it is also your will for your creation, mankind, to listen, to Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. Lord, Father, this is your will for us to believe, to trust, to have faith, to, to <clears throat> rejoice in your grace. And Lord Father, and to know you. And Lord Father, it, is, it would be impossible for us to know you unless you've given us your word. It is your will for us to know you. So you've given us your word and you've bestowed onto us your spirit that your spirit may um, uh, speak in our, in our hearts that yes, these things in the word of God are true. These things about Jesus are true. Salvation is true. Eternal life is true. All in him. And so Lord Father, we thank you for your will. Uh, your own will, your will in Christ, and your will for us, all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.